A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England. Episode 83, Crisis. So, at the end of 1296, Edward was gearing up for war again. In France, things finally seemed to be going his way. Edward had shelled out vast quantities of cash for allies, with little result. But, now that Floris of Holland was dead, possibly at English instigation, the new Count of Holland was enticed into the English camp through the offer of a royal princess, Elizabeth. Which is nice, isn't it? Sorry about killing your dad and all, but look, here's a nice princess. Friends again? No hard feelings? But while Edward was gearing up for yet more war, everyone else was knackered. At a parliament in November, they'd voted one more tax at the much lower rate of a twelfth. But the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Church had stalled, since Pope Boniface was telling them that no taxes could be paid to lay rulers without his personal consent. And meanwhile, Edward's victories in Scotland had cost him vast amounts of money, so he still needed more. All that Edward could see was the need to attack France in defence of Gascony, and therefore he just didn't see the storm heading his way. The first shot was fired in January 1297. Robert Winchelsea, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said no to any more taxation. Edward was livid and went into a good old Plantagenet rage. He outlawed the clergy. So, that again. He outlawed the entire clergy of England. Royal agents started to move into ecclesiastical properties and take stuff. Other laymen thought, hmm, we could do some of that, and started to do the very same, knowing that royal protection had been removed. Edward then let it be known that he would let any individual clerks back into his peace for the payment of a small consideration, which, spookily enough, happened to be exactly the same amount as the tax he'd wanted the clergy to pay him in the first place. But this time, the church wasn't alone. The magnate's loyalty had been stretched to breaking point as well. It wasn't just the constant taxes, though that was bad enough, or even the maltote, the tax on wool, which had resulted in a massive reduction in the price that magnates could now demand for their wool from merchants. Nor was it even the fact of military service. No, the big thing now was that to add to all of this, a new imposition had ridden into town, the prise. The prise, from the French to take, was the most arbitrary of all impositions. It derived from the king's right to have a day's hospitality from his vassals when he visited, and Edward had extended it to the nth degree. Now vast amounts of grain and livestock were grabbed by royal officials to feed the army. And we're not talking the odd pig here. In November 1296, royal officials were ordered to take 60,000 tonnes of grain. And although Edward promised he'd pay for it, we know what Edward's promises are worth. And anyway, you could put your house on the price being rubbish. And so there we are. We're at Parliament at the lovely town of Salisbury in 1297. 
Edward asks his magnates to go over to Gascony to fight the good fight against the evil French. He begins to notice that there's a bit of an atmosphere, and that in the language of the parent, some of the magnates could be accused of using a tone with him. And then, horror of horrors, his magnates begin to turn him down. The Earls of Warwick and Arundel, for example. Now they use the argument that while they're bound to attend the king, they're not bound to fight abroad unless they're specifically in the king's presence. Weasel words. Edward turned to Roger Bigard, Earl of Norfolk, a man and a family that's been at his right hand for the last 40 years. Also, Bigard has inherited the title of Earl Marshal of England, the man responsible for leading the royal cavalry in the king's household. And here's how the conversation goes. Edward, who has spookily acquired a Yorkshire accent, by the way, asks Bigard if he'll go over to Gascony to fight. With you, I will gladly go, O king. In front of you, in the first line of battle, as belongs to me by hereditary right. You'll go without me too, with the others. I'm not bound... Neither is it my will, O king, to march without you. By God, O earl, either you will go or you will hang. By the same oath, O king, I will neither go nor hang. Hmm. Awkward. You were, by the way, listening to more of the Crowther family. Ollie from the frozen wastes of God's own county, otherwise known as Yorkshire, and my son Henry. Bigard was joined by other earls, notably Humphrey Bohoon, the Earl of Hereford, and Constable of England, the Constable, by the way, being responsible for the infantry. In fact, what happens is that the up-to-now utterly reliable Bigard has had enough. Maybe all those years of loyal service gave Bigard a feeling of his own rights, because from now on he becomes the leader, if not of opposition to Edward, the least of a sense that things have gone far enough. As we've mentioned before, Edward is no pussy, and he uses a time-honoured manner of control, just like bad King John before him. He calls in all the debts to the crown from these great magnates. What we get, in fact, is a standoff. The magnates close their gates and refuse to allow the royal officials to seize their goods, while being a king, as far as Edward is concerned, means never having to say you're sorry. There's a prize, by the way, for any of you who can tell me from which film I've bastardised that line. The magnates weren't helped by the clergy, who'd soon folded and started paying their fines to be received back into the king's favour. But at the June Westminster Parliament, most of the magnates were still refusing to budge, with a few wobbles, and Norfolk and Hereford were removed from their hereditary offices of marshal and constable. Edward kept going, and meanwhile the pressure on him was immense. He desperately needed to get an army to France, where his allies were waiting. It was now July, and the campaigning season was passing fast. He appeared on stage outside Westminster Hall, offering up a speech to his magnates and a crowd of Londoners, piling on the pressure, and indeed piling on the cheese. I am castle for you, and wall and house, and you the barbican, the gate and pavilion... My land of Gascony is lost by treason. I must recover it. It is the duty of each of you by name to pass with me. Ouch. Pressure. And nice speech. But the magnates, by and large, had hearts made of granite. Edward sent out what can only be described as a propaganda letter via his sheriffs. 
basically telling everyone that the magnets were a bunch of meanies, not to be believed, and please would everyone pray for him while he went and saved his kingdom. One chronicler remarked, Some prayed publicly, but others cursed secretly. The magnets responded with a document called the Remonstrances, which stated their case, a text available on the website, by the way. Edward now went for the big one. He needed money. He needed it immediately. He had to leave for Flanders before his alliance crumbled. The thin veneer that he ruled by consent vanished in the name of expediency. He ordered a massive prize of all the nation's wool, and he managed to get a tax of an eighth agreed. So who agreed all of this? Parliament and the community of the realm, surely. Parliament schmallament. The phrase used by the chronicler was that the tax was approved, and I quote, by the people standing around in his chamber. Which is rather a nice image if you picture the scene with a girl making the fire and a bloke cleaning the floor and the king poking his head out of the bed and saying, I propose a tax of an eighth. Everyone agree? OK then, agreed. So much for the rise of parliamentary democracy. So Edward just left with nothing resolved, and took everyone who had answered the summons over to Flanders. Clearly he'd chucked the rule book out of the window, and he left the kingdom deeply divided, but you do have to admire his determination to do what needed to be done. Damn the consequences. He left behind him a regency which was formerly led by the 13-year-old Edward of Carnarvon, the future rather unfortunate King Edward II, and the king's letters were addressed to him. There's one where he's clearly still in denial. Here we go. For we will give satisfaction to all those from whom the praise has been taken. And it seems to us that we ought to be as free to buy wool in our kingdom as anyone else. In a funny sort of way, it's quite a scary letter. Edward is clearly refusing to understand that things have changed. He now has a problem of trust. And to argue that he's just buying the wool like anyone else is as feeble an argument as you're ever likely to hear. But in Bigard, he faced an adversary worthy of the name. Bigard stormed into the exchequer and forbade the officials to collect the prize and tax. The young Edward of Carnarvon and the regents in the king's absence called a parliament. The magnates held a rival alternative in Northampton. It really was something of a muddle. Meanwhile, what was happening in Scotland? Here's a nice quote from a chronicler. Earl Warren, to whom the king had entrusted the care and protection of the whole kingdom of Scotland, complained about the dreadful climate there, and said he could not remain there without damage to his health. So he went to live in England, albeit in the north, and was only half-hearted in his pursuit of exiled Scots, which was the source and origin of our troubles thereafter. Now how on earth anyone could complain about the dreadful weather in Scotland and retire for the balmy weather for which Northumberland is noted is beyond me. But that is rather cute. Poor old Warren. And trouble there was indeed to follow. For while the magnates and regents were glaring at each other from their respective parliaments, Edward was struggling to get anywhere at all in Gascony and in September the news then arrived of a massive defeat of English arms at the hands of the Scots at Stirling Bridge. Now, to go back a bit, the renewed war in Scotland had been led by the old and the new. 
In July in the West, Robert Wishart, the Bishop of Glasgow, was clearly involved. And he was joined by a new Robert Bruce. And we finally got to the Robert Bruce, the one we all know and love. Unlike his grandfather, a mainly English noble willing to play Edward's game, or like his father, more interested in his English estates, this Robert Bruce declared to his knights that I must join my own people and the nation in which I was born. However, this particular collection of nobles, initially at least, turned out to be better at words again than actions, and before July was out, an English army from Cumbria had given them a kicking and received their submission. Phew, so that's okay then, no need to panic. Not so, thought the English regime's treasurer, Hugh Cressingham. Hugh wrote increasingly frantic letters telling Edward that it was all going to hell in a handcart. He warned of other rebels gathering in the north and in Selkirk Forest in the south. And so we come to a chap called William Wallace. We really don't know where he comes from. One theory is that he's the son of a minor landlord called Alan Wallace in the west of Scotland. Or there's a reference in a court roll to a William Le Wallace, a thief, which could be him also. But it's all guesswork. But what we do know is that Wallace became a widely recognised leader. And as one chronicler said, the common folk of the land followed him as their natural leader and ruler. The retainers of great lords adhered to him. And suddenly there were two armies openly defying the English and capturing castles, Wallace in the south and the son and heir of a prominent lord, Andrew Murray, in the north. By August, these two armies had combined north of the River Forth and it was clear something had to be done. And so finally John of Warren rose from his sunbed in Barmy, Northumbria, put an army together and set off with Hugh Cressingham to put the Scots back in their place. But to get at Wallace and Murray, they had to cross over the River Forth, and the key place to do that is Stirling, hence the constant reference now and in the future to the castle there. So Julie, Warren and Cressingham arrived with their army at the bridge at Stirling. And there across the river were Wallace and Murray waiting for them. Now the first thing obviously to do was to negotiate, but the English were met with Wallace's firm reply. We come here with no peaceful intent, but ready for battle, determined to avenge our wrongs and set our country free. Let your masters come and attack us. We are ready to meet them, beard to beard. Fine stuff. Now, poor old Warren was still finding it difficult to take things seriously. And so the start of the battle was rather late in the day, since we're told that he'd slept in. But it might have been better if he'd not got up at all. The bridge was the key, and of course being narrow, it negated the English superiority in numbers. But impatiently, the English attacked the bridge, rather than waiting or finding an alternative route. The Scots waited until the vanguard had crossed, and then they attacked, and the English army was duly cut in half. Those left on the southern bank could only watch as the vanguard of over 100 knights and thousands of foot soldiers were cut down and slaughtered. Just one English knight made it back over the bridge, the rather magnificently named Yorkshire knight Marmaduke de Thwang, who fought his way through all the Scots and back to safety. That was it. Warren fortified the castle and fled back to England. Wallace took Hugh Cressingham's body and had it flayed and apparently used a large strip of his skin as a baldric of his sword. Although Murray died of his wounds, Wallace and his army flooded over the border and raided deep into England, 
so that Northumbria and Cumbria burned. By March 1298, Wallace was a guardian of the realm until King John Balliol could return. All of this put further pressure on the English magnates to come to terms with Edward. It's tempting, actually, to give them a hard time for their apparent lack of patriotism, but there was a hard-won principle here of the right of Parliament to approve taxation as opposed to a few blokes hanging around the King's chamber cleaning out his chamber pot. So clearly something did have to be done. And so we go back to the touchstone of English rights, Magna Carta and the Forest Charter. The Regency and the Magnates negotiated and came up with a formula called the Confirmation of the Charters. In this, the old charters would be confirmed, with a few extras. So, for example, the Maltote would be abolished, and no future taxation would be ordered without, quote, common assent of the realm. Crucial was the royal forest. As we've said many times in the past, everyone except the king hated the royal forests. In the confirmation of the charters was an agreement for a perambulation of the royal forests. For those of you who do not use the word perambulate more than once every day, this means to walk round all the borders, reviewing them in the light of the traditional borders and undoing any increases. The strong suspicion of all concerned was that there'd been a steady encroachment over the years by the Crown. So, in October, the agreement was sealed between magnates and regent, and Parliament duly agreed to a tax of one-eighth. The big question was, would the king agree? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, our hero was in no position to deny anyone anything. Things in Flanders weren't going well, the locals weren't friendly, and an insurrection had meant he and his allies had to hole up in Ghent. He'd managed the odd raid into French territory, but that was it. What he desperately needed was the King of Germany, who'd been paid to appear and support the coalition. So Edward, no doubt cursing under his breath, or in fact probably over it, ratified the confirmation in November. Back at home, everyone celebrated, hung out the bunting and began to scour England and Wales for recruits for a new army to march on Scotland, where the Scots waited expectantly. By January 1298, Edward had finally achieved some small successes in France. The King of Germany never appeared, but he'd managed to put enough pressure on Philip to force him to the negotiating table. So a two-year truce was agreed, 
and the matter put to the Pope for arbitration. Now, as it happened, Pope Boniface was something of a mate of Edward's. Back in the Civil War with de Montfort, they'd both been trapped in the Tower of London. So Edward was very hopeful, and now he headed for home. It's worth noting, by the way, that the whole French dispute was very expensive for England. Edward had paid out something like £165,000 to allies. And in all, the whole thing probably cost about £400,000. And as you know, in those days, that's more than a hill of beans. The invasion of Scotland in 1298 now had a very different character. Now it was a war of conquest. The Scottish nobility were summoned to appear at Parliament at York and, of course, failed to appear. And so they were declared rebels. So now, to add to the reconciliation achieved by the confirmation of the Charters, Edward had cleverly added greed. Now the English nobility had the prospect of taking over Scottish lands as well. Suddenly and spookily, there was a rash of enthusiasm amongst the English for bringing the Scots back into line. There's something of a tradition about Wallace being a fine guerrilla leader, but in fact he was very much a traditionalist, and in 1298 his tactics were far from inspired. So look, the cost and trouble of keeping an army in the field for the English so far from home was absolutely hideous. Plus there was a bust-up between the English and Welsh soldiers. The logistics of keeping an army in the field were thoroughly nasty, and in future years, frankly, they'd defeat Edward and his son. But rather than head for the hills and just watch Edward's army melt away, Wallace chose to offer battle. And so on the 22nd of July, 1298, the English found Wallace's army on a hill outside Falkirk. The Scots were heavily outnumbered, particularly in the cavalry department, but their faith was in a formation called the Skiltron. The Skiltron was an answer to the problem of heavy cavalry, an answer which we will see in the pages of military history for several hundred years in different iterations, until the death of cavalry in fact. The idea was that put a foot soldier against a horseman and I think we know who's going to come off best, nine times out of ten, unless you were lucky enough to be a hero in a film. In fact, put a shield wall of men with axes or swords and we still know where the clever money is. But present a horse with a hedge of long pointy things and which self-respecting horse is going to impale themselves just for the good of their rider. So the Skiltron built on the horse's desire not to perforate itself unnecessarily. In the Skiltron, the first rank of soldiers all knelt, holding a long spear planted firmly in the ground so that it could withstand the shock of any charge. Meanwhile, the second rank also held 12-foot spears, but they held them over the heads of the front rank. And as long as they held together, cavalry would be presented with a forest of sharp pointy things and not be able to get through. At Falkirk, heavily outnumbered, the Scottish Skiltrons were circular, which was an entirely defensive formation. But a square formation was also used sometimes, and that was just as effective, and also had a greater ability to attack. In between the Skiltrons, then, were Scottish archers, and behind were the flower of Scottish nobility on horses. It's a neat arrangement. The Skiltrons hold off the cavalry, the archers and cavalry were there to break up advancing formations of enemy infantry. And if the archers were threatened, they could sneak back into the Skiltrons for defence until the trouble had gone away. And for a while, it looked to be working at Falkirk, because the English earls fought with various parts of their anatomy that didn't include their brains. 
The first line of cavalry, led by the earls of Hereford, Lincoln and Norfolk, thundered towards the Scots and met a bog. So they swerved to the left. Behind them came the Reverend Bishop of Durham, who also met the bog and went right. Eventually they arrived at a mass of spears and took the time-honoured cavalry tradition when faced with such formations, called milling. Milling consists of wandering around shouting nastily at a bunch of smug foot soldiers, while they in turn question your parentage in forthright terms. Every so often, a knight will get caught on the end of a spear. Wallace is famously supposed to have called to his men, I have brought you to the ring, now let's see if you can dance. Well, unlike at Bannockburn, England was blessed with a commander with a brain. Edward recalled the horsemen and ordered infantry and archers forward instead. Now this is where the additional numbers for the English really counted. What should have now happened is that the flower of Scottish nobility should have charged and dispersed said archers and foot soldiers. What actually happened is that the flower of Scottish nobility bravely ran away. For this they have received much criticism. The Education Scotland website, for example, implies cowardice. There's a tradition that the Scottish nobility didn't like a parvenu like Wallace telling them what to do, and so left him to his fate. But really the fault was with Wallace. He brought an army to the field that could only win if faced by the kind of idiocy we saw at Stirling Bridge and would see in the future at Bannockburn. The Scottish horse was outnumbered 30 to 1. There was literally nothing they could do. The weakness of the Skiltron then became obvious. They were painfully vulnerable to archers. They were slow and unmanoeuvrable and of course consisted of a closely packed bunch of men. The Scottish archers were dispersed by English cavalry and archers and the Skiltrons suffered a hail of arrows, bolts and stones until they broke up. Then enter the cavalry stage left, stage right and the slaughter was horrible. Wallace escaped the battle, presumably on the back of a horse just like the flower of the Scottish nobility. Despite this fantastic victory, 1298 still ended with a slightly unsatisfactory heir for Edward. Robert Bruce, John Cummin, William Wallace and the other Scottish leaders remained at large. A dispute had appeared in the English ranks about who would be given what in terms of Scottish lands. Edward had failed to be clear and even-handed. Roger Bigard, unfortunately, was one of those who felt particularly put out. And basically, Scotland was still a sea of rebellion, punctuated by small islands of English strongpoints in the form of castles. And then finally, Edward had still, after a full year, failed to set the perambulation of the forests in place, despite the confirmation of the charters. So at the February Parliament, we get a rather lovely, if slightly undignified, bit of theatre. The king had good news, yay! The Pope had pronounced on Gascony, and the result was that the status quo ante was to be restored. I mean, fine, bit daft to have wasted £400,000, but could have been so much worse. Now, it could well be that Edward thought everyone would be so pleased that there'd be no more talk of this charter stuff, but sadly he was wrong. The response of the earls was essentially, yeah, whatevs. What they wanted was the perambulation of the forests, and they wanted it now. Forget all the flim-flam. Poor old Edward was in truth taken a bit by surprise, flustered, irritated and evasive. So one evening he promised that on the following day he would definitely give them an answer. So everyone tipped up the following day, only to find that Edward had legged it. So everyone upsticked and chased him until they tracked him down. 
I mean, what was Edward thinking? It's a delightfully childish response, a bit like holding your hands over your ears and singing loudly. Anyway, when Bigard finally did track him down, further outrage followed. Yes, Edward did reissue the charters, but took out the bit about the perambulation. Oh, come on, please! In fact, it took until the summer of 1300 for Edward to finally give way and announced that yes, there would in fact be a perambulation and that the officials had been appointed. All of this was helped by the fact that Philip IV had meekly accepted the Pope's decision. And to seal the deal, his 17-year-old sister Margaret was to marry Edward, which must have filled her with delight. Not. And his four-year-old daughter Isabella was to marry Edward of Carnarvon, who was now 15. However, Edward was in fact under less political pressure from his magnates than he'd previously been, just because the last few years had seen a steady change in personnel. The Earls of Surrey and Lincoln were still around, but they were very much loyalists. The Earl of Lancaster was now the young Thomas of Lancaster, since Edward's brother Edmund Crouchback had died. We have a new Humphrey de Bohun as the Earl of Hereford, we have a new Earl of Warwick, Guy Beecham, and we have a relatively new Earl of Pembroke. You might remember our William of Valence, the Lusignan, about whom we heard so much in Henry's reign. Well, he'd finally died, to be replaced by his son Imer as Earl of Pembroke. Now, since they were young men, these guys were keen to support Edward and probably slightly overawed by his authority and by his gravitas. It is worth remembering the names, though. They'll be anything but overawed by Edward's son when he becomes Edward II. But for the moment, in the close circle around the king... Roger Bigot is now a little bit isolated, and Edward felt once again able to ignore his obligations so remarkably in the winter of 1299. Yet again, he ignored his obligations to complete the review of the forest. And meanwhile, he called for a new campaign and a new muster at Berwick to take it to the Scots. The results were disastrous. Of the 16,000 foot soldiers he ordered, only 2,500 turned up, and the turnout of knights was equally pathetic. While most of the magnates might be now on his side, the lesser barons and knights were determined to see the political concessions followed through before they'd support Edward's wars. And so there was no choice but for the campaign to be abandoned. In the Parliament of March 1300, yet again, Edward continued to face pressure from both church and barons to deliver on his promises. And again, he ducked and weaved. He made concessions he didn't carry out. He did everything he could to delay and confuse To his horror, Stirling Castle had now fallen to the new Scottish leaders, John Cummin and Robert Bruce. These two guys didn't like each other one little bit, but as the heads of major landowning families, the resistance they led was more effective than that led by Wallace. Again in 1300, Edward mounted a campaign against Scotland, this time from Cumbria. Wonder of wonders, he actually also let the Forest Review go ahead after the three-year delay, but then did nothing about its conclusions. So the result was that yet again the campaign was a disaster. The odd castle in southwest Scotland was taken, soldiers deserted in droves, and Edward was forced to agree a six-month truce with the Scots. Maybe Edward had thought his force of character and reputation could just allow him to ignore the demand for the review of the forests. But in 1301 finally he had to accept it wasn't going to happen. He was short of money, he needed the support of the full community of the realm to prosecute the war in Scotland. The English knights and barons had grown to hate the Scottish war, had grown to mistrust Edward and his broken promises and simply would not support it without a genuine sign of good faith. 
There are some nice exchanges at the parliaments in these two years, which demonstrate that Edward hates all of this. He's a clever politician. He realises he needs to work through Parliament, and like all successful medieval kings, he understands what the failures don't grasp, that hated or loathed, England is not a simple autocracy even now. But for 35 years from the time when de Montfort's head was delivered to Lady Mortimer, he's ruled the roost, and he's carried all before him. Now he has to genuinely compromise, and it really hurts. The wording from chroniclers about the parliaments of 1300 and 1301 are full of anger and conflict. So in 1300, for example, Edward angrily asked, Do you think I'm a child or a deceiver? The answer, of course, could well have been yes. At another, there's this record of Edward's words. I see that through pride you intend to insult me when you think to drive me to so low a condition. The chroniclers reported Edward as saying that he had, quote, no desire to ease his people with what is his. All this is personal language and a hatred of the compromise that he's being forced into. There's also a sense that, faced with this conflict with his magnets, Edward goes some way to making the same mistakes as his father and begins to cut himself off a bit, giving genuine confidences only to his own officials. The principal official in this case is Walter Langton, treasurer of England, Bishop of Coventry, and a deeply unpopular man with the barons, venal and corrupt, although effective. In 1301, Parliament tried to have Langton sacked, with no success. In the background, the dispute with France was not quite over. Edward's marriage to Margaret had gone ahead, but Philip was still dragging his feet over a treaty. And even more irritatingly, Philip was insisting that his allies, the Scots, should be included in a final agreement. So in 1301, Edward tried one more evasion. The Forest Review had indeed shown that the Crown had expanded the forests. So Edward gave the results of the Forest Review to a council of his barons and told them to make a judgment, reminding them that they were bound by oath of homage to uphold the rights of the Crown. It's a nice try, but no cigar. The council refused to back down, and in February 1301, finally, finally, the changes are ordered and actually go through. Now it's important to put all of this in perspective. This defeat is nothing in comparison to Henry's troubles, really it's not. It's a relatively minor defeat, made much worse by Edward's acute sense of his own humiliation. At one point he snarled sarcastically, maybe everyone should have a crown. But he never had to back down about Walter Langton, he never has anything like the provisions of Oxford forced on him or even discussed. In the spring of 1301, the church and Pope also became much more supportive, agreeing to a tax which would help his money problems. And Edward's final concession over the forest also delivered Parliament's agreement to a new tax. In April, Edward's tall, handsome 17-year-old son, Edward of Carnarvon, returned to Wales to take up his new appanage as Prince of Wales. And a new campaign against the Scots was planned, in which the young prince would play a major part. So maybe now it was all coming together. And we'll see if it does next week. Meanwhile, thanks very much to everyone who's commented on iTunes, or by email, or on the website, or on the lovely new History of England Facebook site. Very much appreciated, always. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>